Psalm 41. Would you please give ear to the reading of God's word? Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in times of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak ill of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his head against me, his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. O Lord, there are those who persecute us without cause, but only at your word do we tremble. We rejoice in your promise with great joy. We hate and abhor falsehood. We love your word. We praise you all day long, every day, for your righteous word. All who love your word know great peace of heart. Nothing can cause them to stumble. We wait for your salvation, O Lord. We follow your word. We obey your statutes because we love them with all our heart. We obey your precepts and your commands, for all of our ways are known to you. Father, help us learn more this day from your word. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Hebrew title of this psalm simply states, it was written by David for the director of music. That means David wrote it to be used in the worship of God. This should seal for you its importance. It has a message you should be interested in. This is the last psalm in the first book of Psalms. It's placed here for a reason. This psalm really sums up the whole of David's thoughts in his personal relationship with God. In Psalm 38 and 39, he gave his view of sin, and in Psalm 40, his understanding of grace. In this psalm, he shows his recognition of the works prepared in advance for the believer to do. Again, as we look into this psalm, we come to see that through it, God has shown us the hidden gospel. He has laid out the foreordained works of God in preparing the hearts and souls of men in every generation. I don't believe there's any way you can divorce the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the words and thoughts of this psalm. In Psalm 38 and 39 and 40, the hearts of all believers were prepared, prepared to be softened and opened to the underlying truths of God's great covenant of redemption. We can hear the wonderful works God has done in the words of this psalm. 
they are given to make clear that it was the sending of Jesus Christ into this world that secured the glory of salvation for all who would hear and believe. David was given a picture of what true salvation would be like in this psalm. Throughout his life, David had many experiences that prepared him to write this psalm. All of those experiences gave him the insight and power to take pen in hand and write such a treatise as this on God's foreordained work. This gives us some insight into how full David was as a type of our Lord. He endured many of the same things our Lord faced. He painted by his life a picture of what our Lord would face as he came into the world. Those things that were such great times of bitterness in his life, they have been proved throughout the Lord, through the Lord Jesus Christ to be things, things that secure for believers a foundation of sweetness. Not just for one generation, but for generations to come. This idea can be seen clearly in verse 9 as David speaks of his friend betraying him as the Lord was betrayed. This is a picture of Judas Iscariot. This gives a glimpse of the theme of this psalm. It shows the antitypes of the Christian life and makes clear the works foreordained by God for the believer. Let's examine this psalm. First, we start with a divine principle given to govern your life. Second, it shows the desperate position from which believers must work. Third, it gives a diligent prayer for those called to such work. You should be able to see in each verse how the truths of the gospel are hidden throughout the words and thoughts of this psalm. This should be an assurance to you of the importance of the covenants God has made to bring man to himself. David begins this psalm with a divine principle. This principle is made with regards to how you should live your life. It shows how you can live your life before a holy God with assurance he's watching over you. Is this not the very promise of Jesus Christ? In Luke 21:18, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the persecution they will encounter, and he promises them, not a hair of your head shall be lost. He gives them assurance that he will always be watching over them. David opens this psalm with a very important message. Verse 1. Blessed is the, he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in times of trouble. This message begins with mercy. There is no greater need in the lives of men than mercy. All men are sinners. All men are in rebellion against God. They have all received the sentence of death through Adam, and they are all separated from God. There remains one hope for sinful men, and that's the mercy of God that he will forgive them. This is the first step in this divine principle David upholds for you. If you want mercy in your life, you must give mercy to others. Jesus takes the same thought, and gives it to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you call yourself a believer, Proverbs 3, 3 lays down for you, your, lays down your ordained, foreordained path. 
Let not mercy, love, and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Jesus makes this a command in Luke 6, 36, when he declares, Therefore be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Clearly, you should recognize that mercy is grounded in Christianity. It comes from the concept of humility. God shows mercy to you because he is completely at ease with who he is. There's no threat in you that would cause him to draw back from you. He is the creator. He knows the power he has over your life. Christ was a humble man because he knew he was the son of God. Being humble comes from knowing your strength. You will learn to exercise mercy only as you learn of your sinful nature and grow to know you are a recipient of God's mercy. As you learn and understand the forgiveness he gives, you can freely give that gift to others because they no longer threaten you through their sin. Mercy begins with humility. Without humility, there can be no mercy. Humility-driven mercy is a part of the foundation of love. David includes in this divine principle the results that come to the one who exercises mercy. What does the Lord promise to do for those who show mercy to others? Verse 2, the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. There's no other way, no other way in which you can know God's wonderful protection in your life than by living your life as he instructs. God is the word and learn what God would call you to do in his name. The Apostle Paul teaches Timothy about com commitment, commitment to preaching the, the, the gospel. He says in 2 Timothy 1.12, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. You see both the humility of Paul and the confidence in the protection of God because he's doing what God called him to do. Is this not the message Christ gave to his disciples? He spoke to them about what they must do for their enemies. Listen to what Jesus taught the disciples in Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. He was kind to you. He saved you. Understand. Without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you'd still be ungrateful and wicked. It's his mercy that has delivered you from such, such a terrible condition. God came into this world. He lowered himself. He came as the God-man, Jesus Christ. He took on flesh and blood. He humbled himself to come and do for his people what they could never do for themselves. Why did he do so much? Why did he do such a thing as this? He did it so you, a sinner in rebellion against him, might see the wonderful character of the one you rebelled against. He extended mercy to you, his enemy. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The emphasis begins on the little word so. This is an important word. It's how much he loved that's important. He loved his creation. He loved the works of his hands, mankind. So much he gave. He committed to you the one he loved the most, his only begotten son. He did this to show you the depth of his love towards you. He did it so you might understand the protection he was promising to his chosen people. What is your response to such love? It is to love others with the same type of love. His response to you when you do that is to protect you and ensure that no spiritual harm can ever befall you. He promises his wonderful divine watch care over you. The last part of David's divine principle is strength. Verse 3, the Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. Please understand, there's no promise of any exemption to the chosen from pain and sorrow. What he promises is strength and comfort from whatever comes. He uses sickness as an example. When you are the recipient of God's mercy, living your life as one supported by his mercy and extending it to others, you will see your strength comes only from God. Trying to live your life by your own strength is the root cause of sin. Sin causes turmoil in the life of a believer. Left undealt with, sin can bring that person down into a life of agony. It can wipe away all hope. It certainly leaves consequences to be dealt with. Yet, even when that happens, God is undergirding, strengthening, and preparing you for his mercy. He's working to bring you to the point you acknowledge your sin. It's by God's strength this happens. It's his work in your heart that begins to build strength for you to overcome your sin and find your place in him. Strength and comfort are given to you above. They are given to support and carry you through the trials of life. This is promised to everyone who works to show that same mercy and grace to others in their lives. David's divine principle is this. God has extended his mercy to you. You extend it to others. When you follow this principle, which Christ also gave in Matthew 7, 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the character of God in a nutshell. Treat others with respect and honor. Treat people and love them like you love yourself. This is the only type of behavior that will produce mercy in your heart, giving you divine protection and strength as rewards for your life. This is the foreordained work of God for every believer. What does this mean? In 1 Peter 1.20, we are told concerning Christ, he was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Christ was foreordained. 
He was sent, sent by the foreknowledge of God to do these wonderful things for you. The word foreordained in the Greek is progenosko. It means to know beforehand. How is it God can foreordain anything? God planned this world and the life and interaction of all creatures. He did it by his decree. God knows what will happen because he decreed everything that would happen. Foreknowledge in the Greek is prognosis, which means forethought. Every good work you have done, every good work you are doing right now, every good work you will ever do was pre-planned by God. It was lovingly and perfectly thought out to be a part of bringing you to heaven for eternity. We began making the point that David was a type of Christ. That doesn't mean he was Christ, but only showed Christ-like behavior through his life. Through his life, we learn a lot about Jesus and what he would be like when he came into the world. As David looks at his, his own life and examines the mercy, protection, and strength he has been given by God, he also sees the antidotes to man's sinful actions. These are all things foreordained by God for his people. Things that were lovingly and perfectly thought out to make you what God created you to be. The first thing David sees is his, in his own actions is his sin. Verse 4, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. He turns to God, crying out, asking for forgiveness. David sees the connection between sin and mercy. He understands. I'm a sinner, lost and without hope, save God's mercy. We understand. Mercy comes through Jesus Christ and his death on Calvary's cross. Christ came to pay the price you could not pay. He came to offer himself once and for all for the sins of his people. This is the mercy David is looking forward to. He wants God to raise him up because he cannot raise himself. My friends, if you are here this morning without hope, if you don't know that God's mercy has covered you by Christ's shed blood, let me lay before you the command of God to all unbelievers, repent and believe. What does that mean? It means you must turn away from your sinful ways and turn to Jesus Christ. Hear his voice as he calls to you through the gospel. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I know everyone here is capable of doing those things. What I am asking you to do is stop, search your heart, and know Jesus Christ was sent to save the lost and dying from their sins. What I want you to do is the very thing David does here. Cry out in your heart to God, acknowledging your sin and asking him for his wonderful saving mercy. How will you know you have that gift? You will know as you begin to extend the same mercy to those around you. What we see in this is that God's antidote to sin in your life is his mercy in Jesus Christ. Open your heart, place your hope in Christ and in him alone, for there is no other answer to sin. 
David considers the actions of his enemies. He knows there is a need for protection by God because of these enemies. Look at verses 5 through 8. My enemies speak ill of me. When When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself when he comes, goes out and he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. If you love God, if you're renewed in his image, if you show the same mercy to others he has shown to you, you must expect to receive persecution. Christ told his disciples about this in John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. Not only will they hate you because Christ of God's mercy and his protection are resting on you, they will despise you because you reflect the glory of the living and holy God. They will do anything to discredit your witness. Lying doesn't mean anything to them. If they can destroy your foundation with a lie, great. That's what they want to do. They can't stand to see your witness. It makes them see their wicked and evil ways. How many times? How many times have you seen someone confronted with their sinfulness turn on one confronting them and try to hurt them with slanderous talk? They told all manner of lies against Christ. Expect they will do the same to you. The sinner desires with all his heart to see the destruction of the godly. Somehow, it makes them feel better about themselves to think the godly man failed and was destroyed because of his insensitivity to their felt needs. Understand, the sinner sees any desire he has for anything as a felt need. Anyone who stands in the sinner's way in meeting those felt needs, even when his methods for meeting them are sinful, that person who stands in the way is an enemy. Christ stands squarely, squarely in the path of all felt needs. He declares, you are to deny yourself and follow him. You must die to self, and when you do, persecution will come, but God's antidote to persecution is his divine protection. Dying to self is one of those foreordained works. All who trust in Christ and his works were foreordained to die to self and to live for Jesus Christ. David continues this thought in verse 9. Even my unfamiliar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is really an eye-opening verse. Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ after spending three years sitting in his feet. What does that mean to you? You must be aware that all who call themselves Christian are not Christian. All who profess themselves to believe and join a church are not true believers. How can you know this is true? You will know it 
When it comes time to change and they refuse to hear the true word of God through his appointed servants. You will see when the pleasures of this world are more important to them than the word of God. There are those who will come and join a church because they're religious. They like the idea of being considered good. But when prosperity comes and they have grown in wealth and prestige and their desires grow bigger each day for worldly things. The call of the gospel begins to grow fainter and the next thing you see is open sin coming forth from their lives. When they are confronted with that sin, they rebel and say, you don't have any right in their life. We had a man a number of years ago who left his wife and was living with another woman. When I confronted him, he reacted. He told me he joined the church for what he could get out of it and not so the church could judge him. This is the classic definition of hypocrisy. These hypocrites will quickly turn on the very ones seeking to help them and show them the true path of righteousness. They refuse to listen to God's word and follow a path of their own making. Dear ones, you must be prepared to have this happen to you. It is what happened to Christ, and you can be assured it will happen to all who follow him. What this shows is that the strength of God is the only antidote to hypocrisy. In order to have that strength in your life, you have to come to God's word. You have to make your commitment to hear his truth and apply its teaching to your life. When you do that, the threats and curses of your enemies will melt. Their desires to see you gone and out of, their, out of the way will never materialize because God will be supplying the strength you need to constantly be a witness for him. Take that strength, go into the world, and confront those living in sin. Call them to hear the truth, to repent of their sins, and believe on this one sent to save them. This is another of those foreordained works, worked out by God's love for you as his child. Now, having looked at the divine principle in the desperate position, David lifts his voice in a diligent prayer. He asked God to give him the mercy, protection, and strength needed to walk before a holy God. Verse 10. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. David prays for God's mercy. The urgency of that mercy is clearly shown. David understands there's no salvation apart from God's mercy. If God does not save, there will be no salvation. The word used here in the Hebrew for Lord is Yahweh. This name means the covenant God. David calls on the God that has promised. The God that makes his covenant with man. He also is the God who has provided the evidence of his faithfulness through his many acts of kindness to David. What is it that David is seeking? He wants to be raised up up above the mud and mire of this sinful world. He wants to be taken out of the pit and placed on the solid, immovable rock. You will notice in the next phrase, he says, that I may repay them. He wants to repay his enemies the pain and suffering they caused him. Exactly what is this repayment? Is he talking about revenge? No. Christ teaches his people to love their enemies, to do good unto them. 
This is exactly where David is going with this. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in Romans 12, 20 through 21, through a quotation from Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, which again shows the gospel hidden in the Old Testament. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you want to repay those who wronged you, then show them mercy, and it will be as though you're piling coals of fire upon their heads. Is that not exactly how God deals with sinful men? He continually pours his blessings out upon them. Every blessing he gives makes the temperature of hell rise another degree. If they continue to ignore his blessings and do not acknowledge him and his rightful place as their Lord, they will feel the heat of his wrath forever. If they recognize his blessings, call out to him, repent and believe, they will be saved. This is David's desire for them. This is, his, this is the foreordained work of God preparing with love the salvation of his people. You are foreordained, foreordained to interact with sinners so you can share the love of God that has been given to you through Jesus Christ and his foreordained work in your heart. David prays for God's protection. Verse 11, by this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. David's enemies cannot overcome him because of God's protection. You may be in the same position as David, fighting against such vile enemies. You will think they have won, but you can be assured in the end they lose. God will not allow them to win. You will find rest and peace in eternity. They will find agony and punishment in hell forever. You have the promise of a holy God. They have only their efforts. You have assurance in Christ Jesus and the comforts of his works. They have only hopelessness in their own works. David prayed for that everlasting covenantal protection. Your protection is in your position in Christ where nothing can remove you from his embrace. They have nothing but a growing fear of a consuming fire that cannot be quenched. This is a foreordained truth. Without Jesus Christ, no man can ever enter heaven. David prays for God's strength in his life. Verse 12. As for you, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. It's not David's integrity that saves him, but the integrity which he was given by God. It is God that gives integrity to men. It is God that sustains that integrity in their lives. Such blessings can come only to those that have been foreordained to receive them. Understand, it is God's strength and God's strength alone that can change the human heart. It requires his strength to take a heart that is evil and make it righteous. It is his strength alone that can make a dead heart alive. If you place your hope in anything less than Jesus Christ, you have missed the salvation of God. It is Christ alone that shows forth in this world the power 
and strength of God. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You have no power, no strength against the dark forces of this world. You are completely helpless on your own. It's only in Jesus Christ that a man can begin to stand against the forces of evil, that forces that have, have manifested themselves against God and his people in this world. Do not, do not be caught in such a weak and helpless estate. Open your ears and hear the gospel and believe on Jesus Christ. Then you can be given his strength. This is a foreordained work of God. It belongs to all who place their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. In the last phrase of this verse, David says, he is set in the presence of the living God. He says, this is not just for today. It's not for a day or two. It's forever. John 3.16 said, God so loved. He loved what he made. He loved mankind. He loved them so much. After they sinned, he made a way for them to be reconciled to him. He sent his only son to do for all who would hear and believe what they could never do for themselves. He opened the door for them to return to his presence for eternity. In his presence, they find blessings and live in those blessings for eternity. Again, you can see that this can only come to pass because God foreordained it to be so. The foreordination of God is simply the carrying out of his covenantal plan for mankind. In the full, it is the fulfillment of his decrees to bring his people into heaven with him. Praise him. Praise him for his great covenant, his wonderful loving covenant. As we come to the conclusion of this psalm, there's one more verse, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is a doxology. I don't believe it applies to Psalm 41 by itself, but to the whole of the first book of Psalms. This is a doxology given over all the wonderful treasures of these first 41 Psalms. They are filled with many wonderful truths and much teaching on how to live your life as a believer. They are truly worthy of such a doxology. David lifts his voice to praise his God for the marvelous truths he's revealed. As we get, can see in this psalm, all of those truths revolve around the central covenantal plan of God to redeem a people unto himself. How has he fulfilled that plan? You are blessed. You're really blessed to live in a time when that truth has been fully revealed. Jesus Christ was sent into this world by God the Father to reveal God's plan for mankind. His plan was centered in Jesus Christ. Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. He completed the covenant works on behalf of all of God's chosen ones. He lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, won the resurrection victory, and sits at the Father's right hand right now, interceding for all that are his. Everyone. Everyone who is called out with a humble heart and contrite spirit have been received and given mercy, protection, and strength to do the works ordained for them to do in his name. The first of those works are to show the same mercy to others he has shown to you. To love all men and to treat them all as he has treated you. This is his foreordained plan for you. So what must you do? Open your hearts 
Open your hearts and begin to live in God's foreordained plan for your life. How do you do that? Go to God's word. Learn of his character. And emulate him in all you do. Let's pray. Father, we come thanking you for this glorious gift of a new heart of flesh. We thank you for the promises that come with this new heart. We're filled with wonder and gratitude for the marvelous gift of your Holy Spirit living in our new heart. We could never know a more powerful expression of the eternal hope of your gospel. You have made it clear to your children that we are ourselves, your very temple, and that your spirit lives in us. What an overwhelming privilege and honor you have given us. Please, Father, help us to live our lives to show that honor. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.